flooding Hurricane Harvey left behind in Houston was deadly and devastating. Entire neighborhoods were submerged after rainfall totals exceeded 500-year levels. But as it turns out, these flooding events are not quite so rare. This was the third storm in just three years to bring so-called 500-year rain to the city. The Portuguese authorities say at least 27 people have died, with dozens injured in central and northern parts of the country. The fires have spread quickly since Sunday. Farmland has been destroyed and towns and villages evacuated as the flames sweep across a landscape left tinder dry after a hot summer. A blaze in June killed 64 people. This was the river that made the land here so fertile. Then over the past two decades, it slowly started to dry up. Now all what's left is some arid land and mud puddles. It originates at the border with Turkey and has been a vital source of agriculture for the farmers here. They provided wheat for the entire country. But climate change and a three-year-long drought means that the country now produces less than half of its needs. This year, Damascus had to import wheat for the first time... The powerful Category 4 cyclone tore roofs off buildings, downed power lines, toppled trees, and flooded low-lying areas. It's believed Cyclone Gitta is the worst storm to hit the tiny South Pacific Island nation in decades. More than half of all homes and buildings, including Tonga's Parliament House, are said to be damaged or destroyed. One of the largest icebergs in history has just broken off from an ice shelf in Antarctica. At 6,000 square kilometers, it's the size of the Caribbean island of Trinidad. Scientists fear the ice shelf itself might break up and add to a rise in global sea levels. Welcome to this Nomosphone episode. Hello, I'm Alex Smith. And I'm Joseph Arandris, and we are two global law students at Tilburg University talking about climate-induced displacement and the deterritorialization of the nation-state. Over the past several decades, news reports like these have surged. Scientific evidence has linked increased flooding, heat waves, droughts, melting ice, and extreme storms around the globe to climate change, and more pointedly, to anthropogenic or man-made greenhouse gases. The scientific community repeatedly shows consensus about the reality of humans contributing to climate change and the subsequent conditions. These conditions are making many places uninhabitable, and people are increasingly resettling to adapt to the changing environment. In 2016, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or UNFCCC, outlined four ways the impacts of climate change affect human mobility. These include, first, increased frequency and intensity of extreme weather events force people to leave their homes. Second, warming and droughts that affect agricultural production and access to clean water force people to find alternative locations that offer livelihood and food security. Third, slower onset climate impacts, such as sea level rise and desertification, decrease habitability in coastal areas, islands, and arid zones. And fourth, the previous three impacts cause stress on community cohesion and diminish ability to resolve tension, which fuels violent conflict and persecution-related human mobility. As climate scientists predict that conditions will only worsen in the coming decades, what are the options for people that are forced to flee? From a legal perspective, we need to distinguish between two types of displacement. Internal displacement is when people are forced to flee, but they remain within their country. Whereas cross-border displacement is when people are forced to flee across national borders. Let's quickly look at some figures. 
The Internal Displacement Monitoring Center reported that while 6.9 million people were internally displaced by conflicts in 2016, 24.2 million people were newly displaced due to disasters. Weather-related hazards, but in particular storms, brought on the majority of all new disaster displacements in 2016. As in previous years, South and East Asia were the regions most affected by disasters, while China, India, and the Philippines have the highest numbers. Small island states suffer disproportionately once population size is taken into account. The United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, or UNHCR, reported that 65.6 million people were forcibly displaced worldwide in 2016, of which only 22.5 million of those people received refugee status. It is difficult to estimate the number of people within that 65.6 million that are displaced due to the adverse impacts of climate change. However, looking into the future, scholars, international organizations, and NGOs have widely cited estimates that 200 million people will be displaced due to climate factors by 2050. This number is roughly equivalent to the estimates of the total number of international migrants in the world today. Climate change does not only pose personal and communal threats, though. It also poses threats to the very existence of entire states. The territories of some states are on the verge of completely disappearing. Think about low-lying island states that are being submerged into the ocean, or coastal communities in the Arctic that are positioned on or rely on ice. Both the people and their territories are being forced to adapt to the new environment. In this episode, we look at the legal framework for displacement and deterritorialization. Since small island states are disproportionately affected, we decided to focus on the Pacific Islands. We will first look at internal displacement in the Pacific. Then we will discuss cross-border displacement. Lastly, we will talk about the role of the international community in further developing legal frameworks for these two issues, and pose questions about the future of statehood. To do so, we interviewed two legal specialists who have done extensive research in this region, including Dr. Joseph Fokona, who is based at the University of the South Pacific Law School. Joseph teaches property law and customary land law, and Dr. Michael Gerard, who is a professor at Columbia Law School and researches climate change law. We also recorded a lecture on climate-induced displacement by Dr. Kiara Rauchua, who is a lecturer here at Tilburg Law School and a refugee law specialist. To begin, let's first sketch out the current conditions within low-lying island states in the Pacific and discuss internal displacement happening there. Every year we see approximately a 3 millimeter sea level rise. Just last year, eight low-lying islands were submerged by the Pacific Ocean. It doesn't take much of a sea level rise for this to occur, making this threat imminent in the Pacific region and island and coastal areas around the world. From the Micronesian island of Kiribati, here is teacher and national coordinator of the Kiribati Climate Action Network, Peleniza Alufa, speaking with CBS reporter Seth Doan. Where was your home? My home, right in the middle of the water. Your home was there? Yes. Just been washed away? Yes, washed away. So you would have been walking through people's homes right yes, now? Yes, yes. Kiribati is just one state at risk. Michael, can you describe the situation in the Marshall Islands, which are also in Micronesia? Oh, it's an existential threat to the Marshall Islands. They, as the seas rise, um, it's going to be more and more difficult to live there. They, uh, the Marshall Islands are only about two meters above sea level. 
there's no high ground there because of the nature of the geology. So the time will come when it's underwater. And before then, it will be uninhabitable because there will be no fresh water um, left to drink. Um, the flooding will become so frequent and dangerous that uh, you really can't live there anymore. So a place becomes uninhabitable before it's completely submerged. In Melanesia, a recent study led by Simon Albert at the University of Queensland found that at least five of the Solomon Islands have been completely lost since 1947, and shoreline recessions at several sites have destroyed villages and forced communities to flee. Joseph, can you describe the situations for coastal communities in the Solomons? In the context of the Solomon, when we talk about uh, displacement, it really involves three kinds of communities. One is people that live on atolls, two, people that live on artificial islands, and three, uh, people that live around coastal areas. So we looked at these three different areas, uh, different categories of people that are impacted by climate change in terms of displacement. Many people, people that live on atoll islands, many of them, their default option is now moving to the urban area, which is Honiara, the capital of Solomon Islands. Uh, many uh, people, people that live on Axel Islands, they actually have customary land rights that is adjacent to their, to their islands. Shifting is to the mainland. It's quite straightforward, unless if they want to move to another location within on the mainland, and that's where they have to negotiate with other uh, land-owning groups. People that live on the coast or coastal areas, many of the communities were actually established as part of missionary influence. So people moved from from up in the highlands down to the coast to uh, be closer to new churches or you know, access to health services, uh, educational schools. So they moved to the coast. People in these different uh, areas have been affected by you know climate change. What about state-owned land in the Solomons? It looks as if major cities are the main destinations for internally displaced persons. Uh, land that is owned by the state, or which is basically urban land, it's only about 13%. The other 87% is customary uh, land. And the customary land, it's actually communal tribes own, own, own the land, um, clans. Many of the people in these different areas, usually their default option, to move is Honiara, the urban area, because I mean to access customary land uh, space would be quite challenging. Um, whereas accessing urban land, it's, that's where you know every citizen they could have access without any challenges. And how is Honiara adapting to this influx of people? In Honiara, it's actually title land. Okay, so it's uh, land that's registered, and the perpetual estate title is actually held by the state, and the state actually creates. Uh, fixed-term estates or leasing leasing portions of the uh, land within the urban space to to actually to citizens as well as as well as foreigners and, and investors. But the land rental is quite expensive, uh, and many of the people that are affected by climate change. Uh, I mean, in terms of income, it's it's really a huge challenge for them to access uh, land in, in in the urban space. Really, around issues around, around accessing urban land now, because of given the of the increase in, in population, influx of people from other islands uh, coming into Honiara. The other point to note is there's an increase in uh, informal settlements 
And does the state currently have any legal instruments to resettle internally displaced communities? Think of the, the state as a guest. Outside of Honara, the city, the capital area, uh, the state does not have control over land. So that in order for the state to access that land, there have to be negotiations between the state and appropriate leaders or you know the tribes or the, the clans. And and there's actually a, a process under the uh, the land law which provides for the state to compulsory acquire uh, land if it's for a public purpose. The other legal instrument is uh, making use of the you know the existing uh, power that the state has to reacquire urban land and redistribute it to, to uh, people that are impacted by the climate change. In the customary space, uh, this is where the rules of custom would come into play. And uh, this is where uh, relationships matter and connections. Aside from land law and resettlement, what other issues are faced by the persons who are displaced by climate change? There's discussions around what happens to, you know, Five, ten years, or you know, sometime in the future, Kiribati disappears, or you know, Tuvalu disappears, or the Atoll Islands in the uh, you know, in Solomon Islands disappears. What what happens? And and one of the, the questions that often arises is, well, if you're moving people, are uh, are you also moving your livelihood with them? How do you accommodate you know, questions of, of livelihood and people are uh, moving to another different place? When we talk about moving people. From one country to another, in the case of Kiribati to Rome, then that's where questions of sovereignty would also be relevant. But if it's, uh, you know, shifting people from one island to another, to the mainland, then it's more a question of how do you accommodate, you know, relationships? How do you uh, make sure that people, uh, feel, feel part of the community that they've moved in? It depends on where, where people are moving, whether it's, just in-country or whether it's to a, to a completely different country. Michael, what about in the Marshall Islands? Internal resettlement in the Marshall Islands is not an option. It's so tiny, and it's all at the same elevation. For many small island states, including Kiribati and the Marshall Islands, legal instruments for cross-border displacement are already needed. So what are the current legal options? Uh, Marshall Islands and Palau and Micronesia, those three countries have a special agreement with the United States going back to 1986 that people from those countries may freely enter the U.S. and work here permanently. Hmm. Uh, But no other country has that kind of arrangement. There have been many discussions and analyses of legal instruments that would be more broadly applicable, but none of them have been enacted. And we don't seem to be anywhere close to the adoption of any international legal instruments that would actually facilitate the movement of people from areas that are threatened by sea level rise and other climate impacts into other countries. There's there's negotiation ongoing of agreements to further discuss the issue, but none that would actually resolve it. There are two essential issues. The first is what countries will take in people who have been displaced 
and the second is how are they treated once they're taken in. Uh, the refugee laws and most of the international uh, discussions about uh, dealing with climate displaced people deal with the second issue, and there are a number of voluntary principles out there for how people who are displaced either internally or externally should be treated, what rights they should have, and that sort of thing. There's a lot of discussion about that. There's virtually no discussion of the first issue, which is who is going to take in all of these people who are displaced. Uh, absent a very specific agreement, such as the one between the U.S. and the Marshall Islands, countries do not have an obligation to take in people who are displaced from other countries. Aside from the mentioned U.S. agreements, what about other neighboring countries, Joseph? Yeah, so far it's only the you know, the case, the New Zealand case regarding application for climate change refugees. I mean, that's the only case that I know of in terms of president that not tries to deal with the issue of refugee because of, of climate change. And, and, and I think New Zealand is, I think, one of the countries now that has, uh, has taken a proactive step to try and accommodate the, the question of climate change refugees. This case would have recognized the first so-called climate change refugee. Basically, New Zealand's Immigration and Protection Tribunal denied a Kiribati man named Ioana Teseatu refugee status. He appealed the decision and the case made it up to the Supreme Court. However, the court declined his application and he was deported back to Kiribati in 2015. I suppose such cases will start pouring into courts around the globe, especially as heads of states have now acknowledged this gap in international law. New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, for example, is one of the first state leaders to publicly speak on this. Here she is on CNN. Areas like Kiribati, for instance, is already experiencing rising sea levels. Uh, we need to acknowledge that we are, uh, unless we make dramatic changes, uh, on the uh, f- at the front of uh, seeing refugees as a result of climate change. And so we see a duty of care there, both to champion internationally the importance of acknowledging and responding to climate change, but also doing our bit. Uh, we, of course, have a refugee quota around the number of U- UN-mandated refugees we take. Uh, We also have a number of programs already with the Pacific. We're looking to ways to build in uh, the responsibility we have on climate change and the way that we approach uh, potentially climate change refugees in the future amongst our neighbours. Prime Minister Arden is reportedly introducing a national climate refugee scheme to begin admitting 100 people annually. While some politicians, news reporters and activists refer to the persons displaced across borders as climate change refugees, We must point out that there is a conflict in doing so in the international context. The 1951 Refugee Convention and the 1967 Protocol relating to the status of refugees define a refugee as a person with a well-founded fear of being persecuted for reasons of race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group, or political opinion. People forced to cross borders due to the adverse impacts of climate change thereby do not qualify for refugee status according to international law. Without getting into the technicalities, There are also substantial differences in how international refugee law was designed that would not apply or support climate-induced migration. UNHCR, among other international organizations, more broadly call these people environmentally displaced persons. While the prospects of widening the international legal definition does not seem likely, why do you think there is so much resistance to do so, Michael? The international uh, NGOs and others who are involved in uh, refugee issues tend to oppose the expansion of the definition of refugee from the 1951 convention, uh, because the number of people who would then be brought into that um, 
regime would be enormous and would overwhelm the traditional people who the people who traditionally fit within that definition. There are millions of those, and they're suffering great hardship as well. And when we have large numbers of people being being displaced, we have seen in recent years enormous international crises emerge uh, with the um, fleeing of people from the civil war in Syria. Uh, many of them tried to cross the Mediterranean to get into Europe. A lot of them drowned in the process. And when they got to Europe, it created a major political crisis within Europe. The number of people who may be displaced by climate change is an order of magnitude larger than the number of people who were displaced by the Syrian crisis. Speaking of Europe and refugee law, in 2011, the European Union passed the Qualification Directive, which set minimum standards for member states to accept asylum seekers. The directive outlined the criteria for individuals to receive refugee status and subsidiary protection. The criteria for refugee status derived from the Geneva Convention, while the criteria for subsidiary protection was specific to European law. To qualify as a beneficiary of subsidiary protection, an individual first shall not qualify as a refugee and second shall have substantial grounds for belief that they would face a real risk of suffering serious harm if returned to their country of origin. Article 15 further defines serious harm as entailing death penalty or execution, torture or inhumane and degrading treatment, and serious and individual threat to a civilian's life by reason of indiscriminate violence and armed conflicts. While this does not include protection for environmentally displaced persons, the directive fixes minimum standards for asylum protection within the European Union. Member states, therefore, have discretionary grounds to provide additional forms of protection that are not required by international law. Certain countries have done so by including humanitarian clauses to encompass different protections, such as environmental disasters and other impacts of armed conflicts. Finland's Alien Act, for example, issued residence permits for aliens who did not qualify as refugees and couldn't return to their country of origin due to environmental disaster. However, as this was not an obligation under the directive or of other international laws, in 2016, Parliament adopted an amendment to abolish the permit category of humanitarian grounds. Similarly, Sweden's Alien Act provided humanitarian protection that encompassed persons unable to return to their country of origin because of environmental disaster. However, this law was also recently amended. This protection can now only be granted to children and families with children who applied for asylum on or before the 24th of November of 2015, and the child in question must be under the age of 18 when the decision is made. While these two nations no longer protect persons fleeing from environmental disasters, the Tribunale dell'Aquila, an Italian court, accepted an asylum request for environmental reasons in February 2018. This case concerned a Bangladeshi national who lost his farm due to disastrous weather and flooding. The court cited provisions within the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. Further, in 2016, the Tribunale di Bologna upheld an appeal of a Pakistani national fleeing from a flood that destroyed his belongings and killed his family. These cases indeed grant protection to environmentally displaced persons, but that protection is not under the scope of refugee protection. In Kiara's lecture, she outlined additional practical and international issues in considering environmentally displaced persons as refugees. One is that international refugee law tends to focus on the responsibility of the state where the person is fleeing from. To solve or to deal with the problem of uh, movement uh, due to climate change, we focus too much on the responsibility of the single state. Do not eliminate the fact that these changes, first of all, are not happening for something that the state itself has done. Maybe the responsibility for what is happening is outside the member state stuff. So how to deal with this in a way that uh, we can allocate costs enough 
just and fair way. Since we're now discussing international law and the US, New Zealand, and Europe, what role does and should the international community have to resolve issues around climate-induced displacement? Michael, in terms of funding and diplomacy, do you see any particular states taking leads? Almost everything is a matter of the domestic politics of the major economies. Those are the countries that would be the sources of this funding. Very few of the major economies are appearing to be generous these days in terms of international assistance. The Scandinavian countries have often uh, given quite a bit of money. But beyond that, um, uh, certainly the, uh, the U.S. Um, is trying to cut back on its contributions to the United Nations. Uh, it, it may be that the politics will change in, in the years to come, but it's uh, that's beyond prediction. Uh, what we've seen in, in several countries is that increases in immigration lead not to more acceptance of immigrants, but rather to nationalism and hostility. We've certainly seen that in the United States under Trump. Uh, we see some of that in Australia. We see it in parts of Europe, although thankfully that has not overtaken uh, most of the governments of Europe. My own utopian view is that a, a fair resolution would be that each major emitting country accept a portion of the world's climate displaced people uh, proportionate to its historic contribution of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. So the U.S. is 24% of, of the global load of greenhouse gases. Uh, so uh, the U.S. Uh, would, under this, accept 24%. But this has no relationship to political reality. There's no way that the U.S. with its current political situation would consider anything at all close to that. A fair resolution would indeed contribute to environmental justice, sure. We would like to point out that the 52 member states of the Small Island Developing States Organization, or SIDS as it's otherwise known, which includes island states all around the globe, contribute to less than 1% of the world's anthropogenic greenhouse gases. Again, the adverse impacts of climate change disproportionately affect communities within these and other low-emitting states. But what about more local funding and diplomacy, Joseph? We saw the Pacific Catastrophe Risk Insurance Company recently provide emergency relief funds to the government of Tonga after Cyclone Gita moved through the area a couple months ago. What position are local governments and agencies taking? Most government approaches are more reactionary than proactive. There's really no coordinated effort. Let's say, uh, I'll give an example. This is for the context of Solomon. Ministry of Lands and Ministry of Environment. When it comes to discussion with regard to uh, resettlement or relocation, government sees it. It's, it's, uh, that's something for Ministry of Lands to deal with. When it comes to uh, climate change, uh, you know, if you have natural disaster or some uh, flooding, that's something Ministry of Environment should be dealing with. So there's not really a clear coordinated effort between the different land ministries in terms of dealing with this uh, issue of, of, of climate change and displacement. Most countries in, in the Pacific, under their constitutions, uh, customary law is actually a source of law, mm. which is part mm. of the, the, their legal system. Most of the people that are affected by, you know, cyclones are people that live in informal settlements or that are hit quite drastically in terms of cyclones and natural disasters. 
Now, people that live in informal settlements or people that live outside of the urban spaces, really in the customer domain. And I guess uh, if there's going to be an effective intervention, there has to be really some sort of partnership between the state and uh, stakeholders that operate within the customer space. So relations within states affect relief and resettlement options. And what about the role of states in communicating adaptation issues to a wider public? Do you think the SIDS organization has been effective within the international community? Well, the small island nations have been very effective in the negotiations at the, on the on the climate change agreements, and they were uh, the motivating force behind the objective that was declared at the Paris Conference of 2015 to try to keep global uh, temperature rises within 1.5 degrees Celsius in pre-industrial conditions. And so that objective was declared. Unfortunately, the architecture of the Paris Agreement did not create a, a mechanism for really achieving that objective. Each country came forward with its voluntary pledges, its intended nationally determined contributions, which don't add up to anywhere close to the temperature goal. They, they add up to more like three degrees or something like that, a level at which the small island nations would be submerged. Uh, so the small island states certainly have a voice, their voice is heard. It has some impacts on the soft objectives, but it's not yet had a major impact on the hard actions that uh, the major bidding states have undertaken. Joseph, do you think the local issues have been adequately stressed to the international community? I guess one of the biggest obstacles is capacity, I think. Um, capacity to negotiate and capacity to you know, try and engage in in ways that uh, small island states, their issues could, could be translated in a way that's convincing at the, at the international level. What people see from Geneva or from government offices is not the same as living it every day. I think it's important to remove the, the emotions and um, focus more on trying to translate the ongoing issues Former president of Kiribati, Anote Tong, seems to agree and said, The global community, we need to talk about um, carbon emission levels, we need to talk about temperature rises, but in fact, what will be achieved once those agreements are reached is of no consequence to our situation because we are already being impacted and will continue to be impacted whatever the agreements are reached at the international level. If nothing is done to raise the level of the islands above the rising seas, then the reality would be that we have to relocate our people. And so we are preparing for that. Many questions remain as to what will happen when a state's territory is lost to climate change. Kiara discussed this topic. There is a need for the international community to address this problem. So if people are moving, how we are going to deal with this? What is the risk to um, frame the problem of uh, environmental displaced persons as a matter of threat? and to the peace and security of the international community uh, is to focus too much, again, on the threat that uh, this movement can create on the host society while instead excluding uh, narratives such as the one of people from Kiribati or Tuvalu to say that's not uh, something unexpected. We know now that in 15 years we will face a problem of disappearance of the state. So we don't want to uh, wait till that moment and then become an international problem of threat and security. We are calling for, for a solution now to discuss the solution. 
Also because the uh, problems that migration create are not just individual problems. So it's true that, for example, especially in the slow onset event, such family or roads, maybe individuals move independently of the community. But in situations such as the one of the sinking island in the Pacific, there is more a collective problem. It's not just on how to receive individuals within host community, but it's what will become one that, uh, of a state, one that the state will lose one of the elements that traditional international law um, requires an element of sovereignty, to lose territory. What is the meaning of citizenship of a state that does not longer exist? Do these people have the right to buy land in other countries? Do these people have the right to vote for a parliament even if they don't have the state? Exactly. And will they indeed lose statehood? Will they lose their vote in the United Nations? Since 1648, Europe and now almost every region around the world has subscribed to the Westphalian sovereignty system. In the context of the Pacific, climate change is posing a new type of threat. Michael, at what point will a state no longer be considered so? As long as basically anybody can still live there, uh, it can still be a, a state. If we get to the point that the small island states are gone, uh, there are going to be so many other climate problems around the world that the statehood of the small island states will be a relatively minor matter compared, for example, to the displacement of at least tens of millions of people from Bangladesh and other places that are much more populous than the small island states. Currently, almost half of the population of the Bangladesh just live only five meters above the level of the sea. And there is, again, estimation that in the coming years, so before 2050, almost uh, 17% of the land will going to disappear. So this is a very dense area. There is a question where people will move. Probably they will not leave Bangladesh. They will just move to other areas of Bangladesh. The question is that, is Bangladesh able to provide them for the, the basic needs of this population that will move to bigger areas. So we leave the countryside, we leave the coastal areas to move to um, big town. And the fact is that Bangladesh is a good example of how changes in the environment is not the only cause of move, but it's maybe a multiplier factor. It's something that adapts to other situations that are persisting there. So form of inequalities, uh, form of uh, poverty of certain areas. That is difficult to prove sometimes the causal link between uh, human action and changes in the environment. But also, what is difficult to do is assign uh, the costs of these changes to the people or to the countries that are responsible for this. These issues are also very much connected to colonialism, since we are seeing First Nations lands within settler colonial states becoming uninhabitable. The Alaskan town of Kivalina which is home to over 400 Inupiat, sits on a narrow barrier island 80 miles above the Arctic Circle. Rising temperatures have melted the sea ice that protected the town from storms, resulting in rapid erosion of the island. It now has been clear for over 10 years that the town will need to move. However, relocating an entire town is expensive. Estimates show it could require $400 million. Kivalina took ExxonMobil and 23 other corporations to court in 2008 for public nuisance. Their argument was that these major producers of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions contributed to territory loss. However, the U.S. District Court dismissed the suit by stating it was a political question and not a legal question. The court also said there was a weak causal link. After filing for appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in 2009, the appellate court published a statement affirming the district court decision. 
As other Nomos Phone episodes have highlighted, we are in the midst of a climate litigation wave. This episode has shown the lack of legal mechanisms available for climate-induced displacement and deterritorialization. States and First Nations communities have been forced to find adaptation strategies on their own in many instances. However, civil society groups in the international community are beginning to acknowledge the global nature of climate change and how it's propelling displacement and disappearing territories. We can see the adverse impacts of climate change anywhere from Alaska, where Inupiat are being forced to flee their ancestral lands because of melting ice, to Syria, where millions of people were internally displaced due to the drought prior to the Civil War, and to Kiribati and other Pacific Islands, where the lands of indigenous peoples and entire states are sinking. With reference to UNFCCC's fourth point on human mobility, the international community should also be concerned about climate-induced displacement triggering violence. The movement can create also other uh, competition for natural resources or can create situation of insecurity, not just for the uh, communities that are from which these individuals are living, but also for the host communities. And this idea of interpreting migration due to climate changes or to environmental changes as a threat to peace and security for the international community um, is, for example, the narrative that is used within the United Nations Agency for Refugees in 2015. They say that people that move due to uh, changes in the environment, they constitute a threat for peace and security. And there is, on the basis of this threat, there is the need for the international community to address this problem. The international community must take a more active and aggressive approach to mitigate and adapt to climate change, including to facilitate the resettlement of persons and entire states. Many measures have begun, including states and insurance companies developing emergency relief schemes, civil society groups and NGOs expanding their campaigns to generate more pressure on states, corporations, and the international community, scientists generating more pointed causal links between emissions and the adverse impacts of climate change, communities and lawyers increasingly pursuing litigation, as discussed in Italy and New Zealand. UNFCCC creating a task force on displacement, national governments such as New Zealand and international organizations creating new immigration schemes for environmentally displaced persons. Also, we have so far neglected one element, and that element is you, the listener. This situation is not just a Pacific problem, although many of you perhaps might even be wondering why should I really care. The fact of the matter is that the same planet you live on is the same dying planet islanders live on. Whether you realize it or not, the threat of climate change doesn't simply end with sea level rise. It affects global temperatures and hence crop productions. It affects climactic patterns, making it increasingly difficult to predict weather cycles and prepare accordingly. It creates droughts, floods, fuels longer forest fires, and spawns mega hurricanes and cyclones. In short, it affects the general course of day-to-day life in increasingly disruptive ways. And in our increasingly globalized world, a disruption 2,000 miles away can very quickly become a disruption in your backyard. To conclude, as our audience is primarily legal researchers and lawyers, what do you think we can do to help those on the front lines, Joseph? The more people are engaged in this ongoing conversations and debate around you know, questions of climate change, refugee law. If this, we have a mass of people engaging in you know, the discussion and the narrative around uh, this issue, I think that would be a positive contribution to what's happening, uh, not only in the Pacific, but in other places, other islands, other states, or other coastal areas.
Thank you for tuning into this episode. Nomos Phone is a production by law students in Tilburg University's Global Law Program. Joseph Arangis and Alex Smith here produced this episode. We would like to thank Dr. Joseph Fokona, Dr. Michael Girard, and Dr. Kiara Rauchua for sharing their time and thoughts on these issues. The European Law Students Association, Elsa Tilburg, for organizing the Climate Change Lecture Series, and Tilburg Law School and the entire Nomos Phone team. Check out our website at www.nomosphone.com or our SoundCloud page, and make sure to watch out for upcoming episodes.